church follow along as I read God's word. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and was terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Genesaret and moored to the shore. And when he got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about, and ran about the whole region and began to, to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they had heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, for as many as touched it, it were made well. Amen, church. Church, you may have a seat. Good morning. Let's try that one again. Good morning. Good morning. First, before I get started... Um, I just want to thank all of you. Uh, if you don't know, last week my, uh, my wife had surgery and um, she is healing up. Praise the Lord. She is, is doing well. Still some healing to go, obviously, but uh, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. Many of you have brought meals to help out us during that time and I, I express my thanks. We truly feel loved by you. Well, we're back this morning in our series through Mark, and I want to begin by talking about skydiving. It seems appropriate. In 1988, who was alive? All right, good deal. In 1988, an experienced skydiver by the name of Ivan McGuire jumped out of an airplane without realizing that he didn't have a parachute. He was an experienced jumper. He'd made many, many jumps. And this was actually the second jump of the day. The first jump went well, and in the hubbub of cleaning up and moving on to the next jump, he forgot to grab a chute. He didn't notice, and no one else noticed. And he went out of the plane, just like always. But this time, he fell to his death. You know, sometimes we can get too used to things. We can get too used to something. We can get too used to situations in our lives. And sometimes these things become second nature to the point we turn our brain off even. And we forget something. We miss something. You know, it's too easy to go through the motions and not think. It's too easy to do something, get in a rut, and miss the significance 
Now, can that happen in our Christian walk? Can we get too used to things as Christians? Can we get too used to the Bible? Can we get too used to its stories and its revelation that sometimes we lose something? Can we lose the awe of our Lord? Can we get so wrapped up in the circumstances of life that sometimes we miss when God is working? Yes, we can. We can grow so accustomed to the day-in and day-out responsibilities, even of our Christian walk, that instead of remaining in a place in awe over our Savior, things become mundane. This morning, I want to address three ways we maintain our awe in the Lord. But first, I want to define awe. What is awe? What am I even talking about? Well, here's a Google definition. Awe is a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. A feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. I actually think that's a pretty good definition. Way to go, Google. That's what we should think of when we think of awe. It's that feeling. It's that wonder. It's that excitement. It's that thrill. It's that wow factor. How do we maintain that? You know, when I was um, in high school, I had a friend named Brian, which was very confusing at times because my name's Ryan. But anyway, um, we went to Astro World in Houston, Texas, and there's a, there's a uh, roller coaster there called the Texas Cyclone. It's the only roller coaster there that's made from wood. It's awesome. It was a Monday. So we were hardly, anyone, hardly anybody there, and we rode that thing 10 times that day. Got to a point where we knew what to expect. Got to a point where it kind of lost its thrill. That can happen in our Christian lives sometimes. How can we cultivate the awe of our Lord in our life? Well, join me if you haven't already in Mark chapter 6. I'll be reading in verse 45. Mark writes, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Your first point this morning is this. How do we maintain a sense of awe toward our Savior? Pursue him through intentional prayer. Pursue him through intentional prayer. Now let's get caught up for a second. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had finished teaching and feeding the crowd And now he addresses his disciples. He tells them to make their way to the other side of the sea toward Bethsaida. Now, you may remember last time, Jesus wanted to take his disciples to a desolate place to rest. Now, we're not exactly sure where that place was, hence the description, desolate place. Now, Bethsaida, we know, is on the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee, so it suggests that perhaps they were on the western shore, perhaps even the southern shore, but then you go to the Gospel of John, and the way he describes it, it may suggest that they were on the eastern shore. So the bottom line is, we have no idea where they were, but the disciples get into this boat, and Jesus tells them to go to Bethsaida. That's what we know. And it's interesting because the text doesn't record the disciples objecting. It doesn't record them saying something like, what about you? How are you going to get back? They just jump in the boat and leave. Were they eager to get away from the crowd? The text doesn't tell us. But they jump in the boat, they obey Jesus, and they hit the sea. Jesus, he dismisses the crowd, 
And then he goes up to the mountain to pray. Now, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Jesus puts such a priority on prayer, even at times, above sleep. And don't forget, this has been a long day. Jesus began this day with the intention of bringing rest to his disciples, but instead, he spent the day teaching and feeding well over 5,000 people. You'd think he'd go up to the mountain to sleep, but no. He goes up and he makes prayer his priority. Now, why are we told this? This is kind of one of those, it's introducing the next story, and we kind of want to, let's get by this and get to the good stuff. But every word of the Bible is intentional. Why is this even here? Three times in the book of Mark, we're told that Jesus withdraws to pray. In chapter one, you might remember, Jesus withdraws to pray after he begins his healing ministry, and that generated a ton of excitement, and people came to him from everywhere, and the next day, you might remember, he got up early and went to pray. Here, the second time that we're told in Mark, he gets off alone to pray. This is after the intense ministry and the feeding of the 5,000. Again, we're gonna see some months from now, he goes off to pray alone at Gethsemane before the cross. Now, these activities that surround the times of prayer suggest that Jesus may have been tempted to abandon God's plan of redemption, which is one reason why he went to pray. Now, let me explain that. There was a lot of excitement around Jesus' miracles. When he starts his ministry, there's a ton of excitement with the people. All the attention is on Jesus. Here in the feeding of the 5,000, again, there's a lot of excitement. And actually, the Gospel of John tells us that the crowd wanted to take Jesus and make him king by force. So think about that for a second. How tempting would that be? The people want to make him king. Right response, wrong time. They want to make him king. How tempting would it be to bypass the cross? On this point, a commentator, David E. Garland, he writes this. Each incident of prayer is what he's talking about. Each incident involves the temptation not to carry out God's mission, a mission that would ultimately bring suffering, rejection, and death. Jesus, in his humanness, may have been tempted to forsake the plan he saw, so he sought his Father. Now, Jesus knew what many of us know, but we fail to apply, that spiritual renewal is vital sometimes even above sleep. He tends to his own heart. He gets alone with his father. And think about the magnificence of this. Jesus, who is God, pursues his father, also God. And if that was important, if it was important enough for the son to pursue the father in prayer, then it is vitally important for the children of God to pursue their heavenly father in prayer. Why? For many reasons. For communication, for praising him, for thanking him, for confessing sins, and for maintaining our awe of our Lord. Prayer keeps the soul soft. It maintains the awe of God. I was reading a devotional this week that reminded me of that verse in John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. 
as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Part of that idea of abiding is seeking the Lord through prayer. It's spending time with him. You know, prayer, that's one of those things that many of us kind of sheepishly say, yeah, I know I should pray more. We think about it. We know it's important. We do pray at mealtimes. Perhaps we say a prayer at bed. Perhaps you have times of prayer here and there. But let's be honest. Do we make it the priority it needs to be? Prayer is necessary. It's vital to our Christian walk. We need to take time to pray. Without it, we can lose the awe. Without it, the Christian life can feel mundane. How do we do this? How do we make prayer a priority? Well, you know, believe it or not, you follow a schedule. You do. It's just some of you think about it more. We all follow schedules. Some of you are actually experts at scheduling and planning and putting it together. That is your thing. Some of you, like me, are a little more on the disorganized side. But we still follow a schedule. We still follow a rhythm of life. You have to follow a rhythm of life. You have to get up. You have to eat. You have to go to work. You have to do X, Y, Z. And whether you think it through or not, we still follow some kind of rhythm of life. So do you schedule time for prayer? Do you work that into your rhythm of life? We see this as a part of the rhythm of Jesus' life. He prays at times during significant activity or before significant activity or after significant activity. It should be incorporated somehow in the rhythm of our lives. And here's another thing. The point that I'm trying to make is this. Jesus, pursue Jesus through intentional prayer. What is intentional prayer? That's prayer that engages the mind and the heart. You know, sometimes prayers need to be brief. Sometimes we don't have a whole lot of time and we just need to say a prayer. I'll give you a for instance. If I have an opportunity to witness for somebody, more times than not, I'll say a quick prayer in my head for wisdom. That's what's needed at the moment. And that's good. But you can't feed your soul on those kinds of quick prayers. You have to be intentional. And how do we do that? We follow Jesus' example. He got alone. He got alone. And that's why it's best if we can do it to schedule our prayer because intentional prayer time between you and the Lord needs to happen when you're alone. And I'm not saying we can't have intentional prayers with others, but that deep communion with God happens best when we're alone. You know, another thing that helps make prayer intentional is meditation. We pick a verse to meditate on or pick an attribute of God. An attribute would be something like his holiness or his faithfulness or his love. We pick a verse, we pick an attribute, and we think about it, and we dwell on it. That makes our prayers intentional. And finally, intentional prayer is carefully choosing our words as we pray. You ever notice how easy it is to kind of fall into a rut and pray the same thing the same way? We, that's easy to do. And when we do that, we could just fall into a pattern of prayer and our mind isn't even engaged in what we're doing. So f- slowing down and forcing ourselves to consider our words as we pray helps us to be more intentional. Church, may I encourage you, pursue Jesus through intentional prayer. That maintains our awe. Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. 
And Mark tells us in verse 47, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Your second point this morning, how do we maintain awe of our Lord? Recognize his presence in the midst of hardship. Recognize his presence in the midst of hardship. The text tells us when evening comes, Jesus is on the land. Now, he's been praying while the boat with the disciples is out on the sea. Now, the text uses this word evening, which can mean, as you could imagine, you know, late, late in the day, evening. But it can also communicate a point of time later than a previous point. And I kind of think that's what it means here. And the reason I say that is because you might remember earlier in the chapter, the disciples came to Jesus and said, it's getting late. So it was getting late at the time of the feeding of the 5,000. You have all the time that it took to feed the 5,000. Then Jesus sends the disciples. Jesus goes up to pray, and now it's evening. So it could be that this evening is simply a point of time after that point of time, and it's actually, it could be dark by this point if we think about how the day flows. And that's interesting. If it is dark, Jesus sees them. How? We're in the middle of the country here. They're out on a big lake. There's no artificial light. Now, there could have been a good moon, sure. Could have been a good moon, but it's really hard to see anything out in the wilderness like this. Possibly, and I don't know this, the scripture doesn't say this, but possibly Jesus saw them supernaturally somehow. But the point is, he sees them. And they're struggling against the wind. Now, this is reminiscent of the last time we were on the Sea of Galilee in chapter 4. And I told you then, this was during the storm, I told you then that the conditions and the geography of the area of the Sea of Galilee is ideal for windstorms. They can quickly arrive and develop. Now, it doesn't appear from the text that they're facing one of those life-threatening storms, not like last time, but undoubtedly, they're facing a great wind, such a great wind, it's battering at them, it's making them very difficult to get their way across. That word for painfully, there in verse 48, could be translated tortuously, almost as if they're being tortured by the wind and they're struggling so hard to make any headway. Jesus sees them. And he sees that they're struggling. And then read what happens next. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, the fourth watch of the night, that's between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. The Romans had four watches throughout the night. They had 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., 9 to noon, or I'm sorry, 9 to midnight, midnight to 3, and 3 to 6. So it's the final watch It's just before the dawn. It's between somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6. And this tells us that the disciples have been rowing all night, or at least most of the night. The fourth watch of the night. Imagine how tired they are. The fourth watch of the night. And what does it say? Let's read that verse again. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, that's one of those statements where you should be like, wait, what? What did he do? See, this is one of those stories that we can get so used to that we miss the power here. We miss the significance. Jesus is walking on water. That's not a mere trick. 
Perhaps you've seen the illusionist Chris Angel. You've seen his video where he walks on water, on a pool that's filled with people swimming. I actually saw the how they did that version. He's walking on clear plexiglass. And all the swimmers that are around him are paid actors. It's a trick. And can I give you my opinion? Not a very good one. If you have to pay people to act like they're shocked at what you're doing, that's not a good trick. That's lame. Jesus doesn't do lame. He's actually walking on the water. And let me add, it's not calm water. It's choppy water. It's stirred up by the wind. The book of Matthew actually tells us that the wind and the waves are hitting them at the front of the boat. Jesus is just out there walking on it. And you know, I think the question that could trip us up in this is, how did he do this? You know, did did he change the water where his feet stepped into solid somehow? Did he make himself less dense than water? How did he do this? We don't know. But you know what? That's not the question we should be asking. The question we should be asking is, why did he do this? And the answer is in the next statement. He meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. Is that confusing? That is an odd statement. He meant to pass by them. The word meant in the Greek is the word for desire. He desired, he wanted, it was his plan to pass by them. Why? There have been many theories as to why Jesus meant to pass by. And some of these theories, they go something like this. Jesus meant to playfully surprise the disciples by beating them to the other side of the shore. Now, I'm sorry, but that explanation just doesn't hold water, no pun intended. Jesus doesn't do things for the thrill of it. He's not out there showing off. But another theory, this makes a little more sense, is this. Jesus had intended to walk by them, but then he saw that his disciples were in distress, so he went to help. Now, that makes a little more sense, but the problem with that theory is that he'd already seen they were in distress from the shore. This is intentional. He is planning on just walking by them while they are in the midst of their distress. Why? Nothing in the Bible is flippant. Every word is there for a reason. So the idea of Jesus passing by is intentional. The idea of Jesus passing by the disciples is reminiscent of key passages in the Old Testament. When Moses asked to see God in Exodus chapter 33, God tells him this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And in the very next chapter, Exodus 34, Moses writes and tells us that that's exactly what God did. He passed by Moses, proclaiming his great 
an awesome name. But you know, there's another passage in 1 Kings 19 when the prophet Elijah had fled from Jezebel. He runs and he hides in a cave. And the Lord comes to him there and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And after Elijah complains that he's the only prophet left on earth, which wasn't true, God says to him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Awesomeness happens when the Lord passes by. Jesus is not leaving his disciples in distress. The passing by is not him ignoring them. He's not out showing off his power by walking on water. He is declaring his divine status. He is revealing himself in a way that the disciples who knew the Old Testament should have recognized. In effect, what he's saying is, just as I passed by Moses, revealing my glory, just as I passed by Elijah, declaring my presence, so I pass by you to show you I am God and I am with you. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he passing them by to say, I am God and I am with you? See, distance doesn't matter to God. He saw them a long way off. He passes by them in the midst of the wind and the waves, but honestly, he's been with them the whole time. Now, just to let you know, water, or rather the sea in the first century, was a representation of danger. The Israelites associated it with danger, and they used it to uh, analogize some of their, their works as danger. God saves his people and saves them time and time again by having them pass through waters. The most memorable of this is the parting of the Red Sea. God parts the water for his people to pass, but he alone treads on the water. Job 9.8 reads, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Psalm 77.19-20 read, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. By passing by the disciples while walking on water, Jesus is declaring his deity, his presence, and his supernatural protection. They might be caught in this paralyzing wind, but they are not beyond his mighty reach. Jesus is displaying his divine nature before their eyes, but unfortunately, the disciples miss it. Look at verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The disciples, they fail to recognize who it is, and they rather think it's a ghost. Now, let's just be honest for a second. We could understand this. We can understand it. They're exhausted. 
By this point, they may have been up for 24 hours. The wind is blowing. The waves are crashing against the boat. They left Jesus on the shore, and suddenly there's a figure out on the water. I mean, what would any of us think? They're terrified, and they cry out. They think it's a ghost, and Jesus, gentle Jesus, assuages their fears. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, that that term, take heart, that means to be firm or resolute in the face of danger. Jesus is extending comfort. He's extending encouragement to his fear-filled disciples. He's saying, be strong. It's just me. Not just, but it's me. And then there's another little miracle that's kind of tucked away here in verse 51. And he got into the boat. He got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Once again, Jesus demonstrates his power over nature. He gets into the boat, and the wind just ceases, just like we saw in chapter 4. Once again, all is calm. And what's his disciples' response? And they were utterly astounded. They were utterly astounded. This means, astounded means to be in a state in which things seem to make little or no sense. To be in a state in which things seem to make little or no sense. In other words, they're confused. They're bewildered. In the third Harry Potter movie, I know, Harry and Hermione travel back in time several hours to change things. And at one point, they're actually spying on themselves several hours earlier. And Harry makes this comment at one point. He says, this isn't normal. And that's what the disciples are thinking. This isn't normal. And by the way, that should have given them the clue as to what's going on here. Now, why did they react like this? Let's think about something. After everything that they've seen, after everything that they've experienced, after everything that they themselves had done just a few hours earlier, a couple weeks earlier, however time, whatever time frame it was, they're still dumbfounded. They're still confused when they see Jesus walking on water. You'd think at this point they would have been exposed to so much that when they see him walking on water, they're like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. But they don't. They're astounded. They can't comprehend it. Why? Look at verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What does that mean? But they didn't understand about the loaves. Does that mean they didn't believe it was a miracle? No. I think they knew it was a miracle. I think they realized that it was a miracle, but they failed to grasp what the miracle meant. They failed to grasp what it was pointing to, the identity of Jesus. They're still struggling to grasp exactly who Jesus is. They're still struggling to grasp his divinity. Why? Perhaps they were so enthralled with the miracle that they didn't realize what the miracle said about Jesus. Or perhaps at that point, when they were passing out the loaves, they were so weary of having served for so long that the power of God just didn't have the same effect on them. Perhaps they'd gotten too used to it. Perhaps they'd lost their awe of Jesus. 
for a moment, let's put ourselves in the disciples' sandals. Earlier at the start of this day, they had come to Jesus. They were all excited about their mission and everything that they did, and they wanted to tell him all about it. And Jesus said, let's go away, let's get some rest. But that didn't happen. They went to a desolate place. They spent all day serving the crowd. Jesus taught. They passed out the bread. And now at this point, they have spent all night rowing. Can you imagine how exhausted they are? Can you imagine the mental and emotional and physical exhaustion? They are spent. What do you think their attitude is like? Cheerful? Happy? More like grumpy, moody, angry. They've faced weeks of ministry. They helped serve a massive crowd of people. Now they're out on the sea fighting against the wind. Their spirits are low. They're tired. They're hungry. And all they want to do is just get to the other side. But the wind keeps battering them. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They had forgotten who it was they're serving. They had forgotten who Jesus was. They had taken their eyes off of the glorious truth of who God is and they put their eyes on the difficult circumstances that they were in. You know, a hardened heart is a heart that's not receptive. A heart that's not receptive because it doesn't recognize who Jesus is or it's not receptive because it doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. Their hearts are low. And yet, in the midst of it all, who saw them? In the midst of it all, who's with them? In the midst of it all, who cares for them? Jesus. And the same is true for us. In the midst of it all, whatever the it is in your life, he sees you. He's with you. He cares for you. In the midst of whatever is battering at your life, that's taking your focus off of Jesus and putting it on your surroundings, whatever it is, Jesus sees you, he is with you, and he cares for you. And he says to you, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. We must recognize God's presence in our lives, especially during times of hardship, especially during difficulty. When we're tempted to fret over the wind and waves of the circumstances that impede our life, we need to recognize his presence, his power, and his authority. They are so close. He sees us, he's with us, and he cares for us. And he will come and help. It may not be till the fourth watch of the night, the darkest of the dark, but he will come. He didn't allow the disciples to just bypass the wind and the sea. He brought them through the wind and the sea. Just like he brought the Israelites through the parting of the sea. He doesn't promise to remove hardship, in other words, but he does promise to be with us 
in the hardship. And when we remember that, we maintain our awe of the Lord. So in times of hardship, recognize his mighty presence. How do we do that? We trust his promise. When he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We remember that promise. That's how we recognize God's with me. And if you're struggling to believe that, tell him honestly and pray that prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Pray that the eyes of your heart are enlightened so that even in the midst of whatever it is, you can see that he's working. You can see that he's with you. He never stops. He never stops working. How do we maintain our awe of the Lord? We pursue him through intentional prayer. We recognize his presence in the midst of hardship. And finally, we follow his example of service. We follow his example of service. Join me in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of the Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So finally, after battling it out most of the night, Jesus enters the boat, the wind ceases, and they make their way to the other side. They're back on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Now what do they meet? People. More people. Yay. Now it might surprise you, if, if you've been paying attention, it might surprise you that the text says they made their way to Gennesaret. When earlier, Jesus had told them to go to Bethsaida. What's going on there? Why the change? Well, the text actually doesn't give us an answer. Several commentators suggest that maybe they were blown off course by the wind, and I think that's a possibility for sure. Possibly exhausted from battling the wind, they just made their way to the nearest shore, and it happened to be Gennesaret. Bottom line, though, there was a change in their destination. And Gennesaret, like I said, was on the eastern side of the, or on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, And it's not a town, it's a plain. It's a plain to the southwest of Capernaum and it's there that they landed and they're moored and they're met again by people. But what does Jesus do? He does what he always does. We're told they get out of the boat, the people recognize him and they run about the whole region gathering the sick on their beds. Verse 56 tells us Jesus traveled to villages. So it wasn't just there in that plain, but he's traveling around again. And wherever he is, people are bringing him to the marketplaces, to the places in town where people gather, and he's healing. He's healing, and they are, we're actually told that they implore him to just, just touch, just let me touch the fringe of your garment, and they're made well. And the summary of this story, this is like a summary of a lot. Obviously, a lot's going on, and we're getting a snapshot of it. But it should remind us of two previous stories, the story of the paralytic on his mat and the woman who touched his garment and was healed. Word gets around. Bring the sick. Just touch his clothes. You'll be healed. We stop and think, how many people were healed in this? Hundreds? Thousands? 
But it's interesting. You know what we have here? We have a contrast. We have a contrast between the disciples and the people of the area. The disciples, those who had personally interacted, they had personally been instructed, they'd even personally been empowered by Jesus, failed to recognize him on the sea. But those who knew Jesus not intimately, but as the miracle worker, they respond with what little faith they have. Get the sick, he's back. The divine servant works miracles among the people. Our Savior was all about serving while he was on earth. Now serving, you know this, serving is hard. It's a sacrifice. But you want to know something? Serving helps maintain our awe in our Savior. Do you know why? Because when we serve, we see God's goodness. We see him working in the lives of others. Have you ever taken the time to serve someone else and you were blessed by it? Of course you have. What is that? That's love. When we love others, we too experience the love of God, and that maintains our awe. Now you might say to me, I know what you're saying, Ryan, but I have served, and I've served for a long time, and I don't have that sense of awe. In fact, serving honestly just feels like a chore. It's exhausting. And I would say yes, and I've been there too. And that can easily happen. At times, we can get into such a groove of serving that we simply go through the motions and we fail to see the work that God is doing. And you know what that is? That's a sign that we are serving in our own strength, not in God's. We forgot to grab a parachute. To maintain our awe of God while serving, it takes serving with a right heart, not a hardened heart. We get that kind of heart by fully surrendering ourselves to him. There might come a week where you're scheduled to serve or you've got this going on in your schedule and you just, you just flat out don't want to. And I get that. But let me encourage you, let that be a warning sign to your soul that you're relying on your strength, not God's. Let me encourage you to take some time to confess that and ask him for the strength only he can supply. It can be so easy to lose our awe. It can be so easy to fall into a quote-unquote spiritual rut that we lose awe and wonder of who God is. We get up every Sunday, we go to church, we sing some songs, we listen to a sermon, we get up every Monday, we have a routine, Tuesday, Wednesday, on and on it goes, and we lose the awe. How can we get that back? We can get that by maintaining intentional prayer, recognizing God's presence during hardship, and following his example of service. Can I add to that, though? Let's pretend there's a fourth point. You want to know what really deeply maintains our awe in the Lord? You want to know what really captures our hearts? Daily reflection on the most awesome thing he ever did. Do you know what that is? It's God dying in our place. 
That is the most awe-inspiring thing Jesus ever did when he stretched out his arms on the cross so that the wrath of God and the love of God could meet. That's awesome. The wrath of God could be satisfied and his love could be poured out at the same time. Do you want to be awestruck by your Savior? Ponder that truth every day. At the cross, God's wrath and God's love are both displayed. Just try to wrap your mind around that. That will fill you with awe. Let's pray. Awesome God, mighty sovereign, creator, sustainer, thank you that you are awe-inspiring. Thank you that the work you did on the cross and the grave blows our minds, capture our attention every day with that truth. Help us maintain your awe the awe of you through our prayer, through our trust, and through service. When we are waning, when our interest is dwindling, show up in a mighty way. Renew our awe and cause us to fall down in worship of you. We need you. We need your gospel. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name.